You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight... We are looking at Season 2, Episode 4 of Bugs, entitled Whirling Dervish. Episode synopsis. Two men expertly infiltrate an airline's secure areas and lay a trap that leads to the destruction of a fuel depot. Team Bugs are hired by Mr. Bixen of the highly suspiciously named Global Center for Economic Equilibrium. Straight Air is an up-and-coming small airline that's preparing to make a big mark on the industry. A cartel of proper airlines have paid an operative named Jerome to put Straight Air out of business. The GCEE doesn't want that to happen. Somehow, Jerome's plot involves an electronics firm that is developing a direct cerebral encoding device, a machine that can beam learning directly into the brain. While Beckett gets a personal demonstration of the device from Selena, head of the company, Ross learns more about the technical aspects of the device in hopes of understanding how this is tied to straight air. While there, Jerome steals the device and the strangely specialist topic for an experimental learning device of the Kazbek language. Ed infiltrates Jerome's HQ and discovers Jerome is hiring a pilot and trying to teach him the Kazbek language. Ed just escapes with his life, but the pilot dies trying to kill Ed. Then they try a new tactic. Ed goes undercover as a pilot and is hired by Jerome. He has a dervish, a Kazbekistan knockoff of an American stealth fighter. He also has a storm burst missile, which can destroy a plane, but make it look like it exploded in a fireball. Beckett realizes that Jerome will need to kidnap Selena to make her work the machine, and he tries to warn her, but he's too late, and they are both kidnapped. She is forced to program both Ed and Jerome to read and understand Kazbek. Ross has become suspicious of Bixen, and well, she should, for he has been bugging them. He claims it was because time was critical, but Ross still has her doubts. The caper goes down like this. Jerome's associate hacks a navigational beacon, allowing them to draw a straight air passenger jet, including Mr. Strait, CEO of the company, off course. Ed and Jerome in the dervish will intercept the jet and destroy it with the storm burst, making it look like catastrophic pilot failure. For good measure, Beckett and Selena have been strapped to a bomb with only just enough time for them to escape on the timer. Roz defeats the navigational beacon hacking. Ed thwarts the plane plan. Beckett and Selena escape in the nick of time. Get it? Nick of time? Nick Beckett? Yeah. Finally, Roz discovers that Dixon was an imposter and does not work for or represent the GCEE. But who was he? An associate of Marcel's, of course. Perhaps even his cousin. But Team Bugs don't know that yet. The end. Okay, Whirling Dervish. What are your thoughts? Well, I felt that this was probably marking the end of Bugs' rather short-lived purple patch. It... <laughs> It it does feel a bit clunky. It wasn't dreadful, but it didn't seem to really deliver on a lot of the potential. 
it, it sort of ignored a lot of the potential that it set up for reasons that I'm not entirely clear and just sort of reverted to a kind of by the numbers bugs formula with the yeah, being strapped to a bomb, Ed flying a something, all that stuff. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> I mean, I enjoyed it, but it had some big explosions. I, 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 uh, I'm amused by one of our listeners' comments about uh, the uh, the budget this show must have for explosions. They they do really go in for some big ones, and uh, yes, it, especially. I hadn't really thought about it even before the even in the cold open. That was. I have I have a note. <laughs> I just big explosions exclamation mark <laughs> I, I i was sitting there watching it my son was at the the dining room table um looking at his phone and, and as they were getting to that point i I just said to him look now big explosion coming <laughs> and it was it was it was good it's, and i don't think it was a stock explosion either there was some stock footage in this film obviously from from somewhere of the the stealth fighter flying but uh, it it did seem like maybe they'd staged that explosion. I don't know. It, it fit in nicely. Yes, clearly they had they had spent any money that they might have had in their dervish model and and uh, yeah, flight or I don't know. It's too early for CGI, isn't it? But their der- their dervish model budget had obviously been raided in order to have an extra explosion because <laughs> that was not exactly seamless shall we say no no it wasn't and and i i was laughing at the high snow capped mountains that <laughs> it was flying over and be like well i i mean i have a problem with jet distances when talking about europe so i guess maybe they're over france or spain or something but certainly not over the british isles so uh, I don't think so. It looked more like the Alps or the Rockies or yeah, I proper do. proper mountain range somewhere. Yeah, I'm. I'll start with this one. I'm tired of Marcel. <laughs> I think I said that last time, but I I I, I do feel like they're kind of just overusing this. Well, it's not. It, it's not as if he was a very central element of the plot. Uh, or no, let me put it another way. In a sense. He was behind the whole plot, um, and yet he didn't have a great deal of screen time in the episode, and you could have just clipped out those bits without really affecting the overall storyline. I think the difference is, and perhaps the reason it feels a bit more intrusive, is they haven't just saved it for the tag scene. Mm. Oh, this was Marcel behind it all the time. But they've actually inserted a scene at a sort of key cliffhanger point mid-episode where we get to see him doing his thing and also i think we're establishing another overarching plot strand of the slightly strange jail guard yes on, i think on to his game i think she's going to be the one that approaches team bugs later in the series well there's certainly something going on there but it again i'm not sure the prison sets are where they've been spending all their money but it's it's particularly weird in that, I mean, first of all, I, I don't know how novel it is to have a female guard in a male prison. Um, I'm sure I'm sure it happens now, but this would be 95, I think. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, regardless of that, the costume that she is wearing 
is quite strange. What's the... I mean, the hat is not particularly functional, but she's wearing a sort of... Uh, a set a set of safety glasses? Is that? I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it is sort of... A, I think it's supposed to be some sort of high-tech thing, but... Like I don't get. I thought she just I don't been get using this some power prison. tools. Yeah, I don't get this prison. I don't understand what kind of prison gives Marcel a private cell. I know he's been working his way up, but I mean he's got this private cell, and at the same time they're doing this very harsh "prisoner will stand" kind of. And I can't tell. Is this supposed to be a high security prison? Is this a low security prison? I I I just don't know. Or is this supposed to be some special? high-tech prison for high-tech criminals which case you'd think they'd know better than to let him have (laughs) access to a computer i don't think it's a high-tech prison and i'm no expert on prisons other than what i have seen on television but in more realistic series i think that it's a basic security measure that they the prisoner stands up before you enter the cell could be just to make sure they're not hiding something or yeah yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know the specific reasoning around it, but I'm not sure that that's a particularly high security thing. But on the other hand, what is notable, again, I don't know, I think this may be more common, but would it have been true in 1995 that he has his own cell? Yeah, I, I thought your own cell... I mean, with a computer in it is the strange thing. Who are really, actually, but yes. yeah, nasty. That's That's usually solitary confinement, or I guess maybe prisoners who are at risk from other prisoners but yeah i mean i I think i think this is partly affected by something which shapes the 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 kind of the bugs universe the bugs environment um that that i'm i'm going to come back to that i think there is a reason perhaps or a or a theme for its unreality Mm. but before we leave marcel i just want to say though that i do appreciate although i don't I'm just not buying him as this master manipulator thing that's that should be an overarching threat. I do kind of appreciate the fact that, yes, I was suspicious of Bixen very early before Roz was suspicious of Bixen. But at the same time, there by putting Marcel in earlier, you could be forgiven for believing that Jerome was working on behalf of Marcel Mm -hmm. because you know, they're manipulating the markets basically by taking out a start. And so in that respect, it it's kind of okay. It's a fair, it's a fair bluff. Um, I think maybe hiring two bald actors did make me think of Marcel almost immediately when they brought him in. Um, That's your assumption that the bald people are always going to gang up on everyone else. Their family. Their family, yeah. Um, no, there's just something about his manner. There's something about his his demeanor that goes with it as well. It it's like, are they casting a family member kind of kind of thing? Well, he didn't. Marcel didn't look anything like his. It was his brother, brother. wasn't it? In, no, he didn't. In, in Pulse, so not remotely. No, <laughs> but his brother was the dumb one. Presumably, Bixen is not the stupid one. So I don't even know if he's supposed to be really his cousin or whether that's a cover story to get him to visit him in the prison, actually. I mean, I I have that down as a question. I don't know if he really is his cousin, but it wouldn't surprise me based on what we've seen of Marcel before, keeping it in the family. 
And they did talk about the family being, as I recall, the family were all pretty nasty, weren't they? Was wasn't there something in series one episode where they were talking about there being this family and they were the worst of the bunch or something? You mean in Pulse, the the episode that yeah. introduced him? Yes. I hadn't remembered that, but then I can't remember every detail of it. No. Well, I just I vaguely remember there was something about that. Um but I I could be that could be definitely be a false memory. All right, sorry. I drilled that. I just wanted to say I did at least appreciate the way they layered that in if you were trying to go for the double bluff on it. But so let let's talk about the big sci-fi element of this episode. Yes, let's. The learning device. I assume that's the one you were talking about. <laughs> the cerebral encoding machine. Yes, the cerebral uh reminds me of Spock's brain. Classic classic episode of Star Trek um where they had that had a device similar to that and uh, it only worked for a short period of time. I, I have a feeling like Ed is permanently able to speak or uh, read Kazbek from this point forward. I don't know. So it, it, with, 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 I'm interested in Spock's brain because obviously this is not, not necessarily the first time such an idea has been introduced in sci-fi, but it does raise all sorts of interesting questions about learning, different types of learning, which, you know, are interesting to people involved in education um, and about memory and the way memory works and about memorizing facts and about learning and about differences between facts and skills and all this on all this kind of stuff um and i and i'm wondering whether that was something that was part of this the, the star trek story oh well first off no one has ever used the phrase i'm interested in spock's brain it's one of the worst episodes of the show just gonna say there <laughs> um but um in the episode there is this high-tech civilization or or the the remnants of this high-tech civilization and the knowledge that their people don't have to do specific tasks can be programmed into them so in the case of this episode dr mccoy has to have the knowledge imparted to him of how to reattach a brain into someone in this case spock uh, spoiler in case anyone's out there spock's brain is a central part of spock's brain and Dr. McCoy has to learn this. So they, they write that information into him so that he can perform the surgery. Unfortunately, it does not last long. So it begins to run out as he is performing the operation. So that, that's basically the, <laughs> the, the premise behind that idea. And he has to fall back on his own medical skills and, and something else, which I won't mention because that is spoilery. But it, I mean, that... There are all sorts of interesting things there that may not may not be part of it, which are to do with the differences between the 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 kind of the the knowledge of the procedure, which could be about understanding visually what he is he is looking at and where you, you, you know the 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 I I don't know how not not being a, as much for Trekkie as you I don't know how McCoy's um, Vulcan anatomy is and so I can see there could be things like that that would be essentially intellectual knowledge but then there's also the kind of some of the the kind of motor memory that you would only achieve normally only achieve through experience and practice mm -hmm. um, which would which would apply in a situation like that and I think would apply when you're talking about piloting 
something. Although, it, I mean, in in this case, it, what Ed actually learnt was was the the language stuff. But I, I, the 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 parallel that occurred to me was was actually with the Matrix, where they do download things like knowledge of how to pilot a helicopter. But that's within the the kind of very well established world of of the the kind of matrix the matrix's mm-hmm. virtual experience, and so it's already been established that it is all effectively a computer program, and this is some kind of subroutine within the computer program, and so on and so forth. So that that it's it's kind of it's interesting. Uh, the matrix is is quite philosophical in its approach and Mm -hmm. it's consistent with all of that so that kind of brings me back to the question of what did we think about the way in which bugs used this very interesting piece of science fiction speculation to explore the the human condition (laughs) i badly kind of i i i see i don't entirely agree there I I cast a little bit of aspersions there uh, because yes, they're developing this pilot device, and coincidentally, one of the things they thought was appropriate to encode for their beta test program was the Kazbek language, uh, which has <laughs> got to be pretty freaking niche. But okay, makes it a good test. You'll be pretty sure someone someone who's a subject is not already going to speak Kazbek, so or read it. Yeah. That that's a possibility. Read it. Sorry, I, yes. I I I did think of that before I did that. I said, "Really? Would you pick Cosbeck?" And the the vast coincidence that you would pick Cosbeck and that happened to be the language of the fighter jet that they happened to have that they needed was a little bit much. But I what I wanted to, the, the things that popped up to my mind about this the questions are if you can beam info, can you beam thoughts and ideas? Attitudes. Exactly. Could you change behaviors of the person who is uh, learning it? And how does this differ from quote unquote real learning? Because it seems almost eidetic. Beckett Beckett can remember chapter and verse and page and uh, uh, word for word of this thing, which is not the way memory works. And it's not the way memory is encoded in your brain. And so... And what if he'd already, for example, knew that book or... What if, what if Ed had already had some experience with Kazbek or something? Does it overwrite it? Does it augment it? Does it? I don't know. There, there were a lot of fascinating questions, and one of them is: Is this really a good idea to even experiment with? Because oh, <laughs> it this could go seriously wrong. Yeah. I I yeah. I don't. I'm not typically one of those people that says, hey, this is a technology that we shouldn't explore because of its massive implications for evil. But there are some massive implications for evil. And, and, you know, can you encode? Well, obviously, you can encode false information. If you can can encode real information, you can encode totally false information. You could give the person an entire degree program in atropathy or something that's that's, you know, completely rubbish. Uh, which you can already do it's just slower yeah you just have to go to university for it or well you couldn't see the air quotes but yeah Uh, 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 yeah it uh, but it could be even more gibberish there's a there's a a comedy routine by 
Wow. Let's see if I can pull this back. Steve Martin, 1970s. Can't remember what album it was, but he he was explaining how if he'd had kids, he would, or when he's around kids, he teaches them nonsense words so that when they when they speak, they'll say things like, can I mambu patch in the something? It's just absolute gibberish because you've you've encoded them with stupid, dumb ideas, which, you know, is meant to be a comedy idea. But if you could beam it into people's heads, bad, 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 bad. Oh, bad. Really bad. <laughs> but the, but there but there are equally, if not greater opportunities for using this in a positive way. I mean, the ability sure. to learn all sorts of things the 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 advances in our collective knowledge and the kind of economic benefits apart from anything else it's it's a it's a huge huge deal didn't we didn't we have an episode about this in the prisoner as well the general yes where everyone in the village was taking speed learning courses through their oh yes yes tv and programming it in yes equally with which of course would be much more sinister in the village than it would be, <laughs> would be in star trek where it was used for for good yeah i i agree i mean it okay in a perfect world right in a in a perfect world if you could take kids and put them in school and and program them with with genuine vetted factual information the the or professionals to, you know, have everyone have access to the latest, the greatest, the best. It would be a, an amazing thing, but who vets it? Who, but, I mean, who gets it, to makes the argument that this is right? Because we already know people are arguing about reality at this point. So that is, that, that, is the, that is the point. It, it, learning isn't new. It's the speed with which you can learn that is particularly interesting. So, right. And it seems to be the, the level of detail, too. Yes, but it's still you're 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 just talking about a different order of magnitude of something that already takes place. So it's not as if something new and evil could happen. And it's only that in order to do something good, it would be because you would be able to learn so much more. I mean there's no question that Ed could have learnt well, maybe there's a question, I don't know what his facility with language is, but he would have been able to to learn it given enough time and the point about the situation was that he didn't have time so it was very convenient i think i think there is a difference though between what goes on now and what this machine represents if you can if you can convey the entirety of the cosmic language in a in a minute or two there is you know, there, there takes takes a time. So, for example, it takes time to radicalize people to become suicide bombers. It, it don't. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. But to that's do not it. factual. That's emotional. So, the, so the but this the, the question is then. But, but if it might. you were pro- if you programmed people with quote unquote facts that are not facts that led someone to believe it, you might be able to radicalize them in minutes. Right. Well, I think that, I think I think just just because you have information in your head, you don't automatically assume it is a fact just because you have read. I mean, the the, the very example is great illustration of why that's not the case with this machine, because Nick has a fiction transmitted into his into his mind. It's it's a novel that he knows is a novel. He does not start to believe everything in that novel to be true. He just has now a memory 
as if he had read the book himself. As if he read the book himself, but can they then implant the the memory that you have been taught this throughout your you've been taught this previously in a, a totally benign and believable way? That, that, well, there's no suggestion of that. No, I I I have I have great. I have great concerns about the potential of beaming information into people's heads. I, I, I just want to say, I, I, I see the advantages. I really do. But, um, <laughs> and, and again, does it overwrite previously encoded information? And when I say encoded, I mean information that you have learned through the old-fashioned way. That is an interesting... Uh, so, for example, I, I've read... It's, it's, hard, it's hard to see how it would because... It, w- w- what form would that take? Would that would that be if Beckett Beckett has this book beamed into his head, or the memory of this book beamed into his head? Has he now forgotten some other book he read, or he read that book previously and he interpreted it differently, or or he well, the inter- or the I read the, is, is still his I own. read the, the time machine. I read the time machine by H. G. Wells, and then twenty five years ago, and then they beam a. A, a subtly altered version or even a drastically altered version of the time machine by H.G. Wells into my head. But if you read a drastically altered version of the time machine by H.G. Wells, the original memory of having read the time machine by H.G. Wells doesn't disappear. But we know, we know the memory, memory doesn't... We know memory isn't... changes every time you recollect it. You don't need to read something similar to change the memory that you already have. Right. So would this, in effect, be such a stronger memory, be such a more eidetic memory that what you actually read gets reshaped in your mind to match this stronger version? Because it because it can change. I mean, I don't know. Well, that would that would I think that would simply be the case if you read something, you know, 30 years later, the more recent reading would be a stronger memory because it's more recent. So I'm not sure there would be... I'm not sure there's any... There's no indication in what we see, which isn't a lot. No, no. That, that would be any different from that. Yeah, no, if they, if they study this in depth, they would have gone down a rabbit hole. <laughs> because I, well, I don't... I, 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 no, I, I, I'm not sure that that's true. I think there is a lot that they could have done with it. We've We've already talked about examples from The Prisoner, from Star Trek, from The Matrix. There are many, many others in science fiction. I disagree that what they did in terms of exploring this interesting science fiction concept was done badly. I don't think they did it at all. I don't think they bothered to explore the science fiction concept. The cerebral encoding machine in this episode is just the MacGuffin. There is no attempt to use it to illustrate anything about humans or society or how we learn or how we interact or anything like that it's just something that is convenient within the plot i mean for goodness sake they blow it up in the end i mean it's like one of the one of the most key things we learn about this is not how it encodes people's memories or the types of learning that it could impart to people. It's that for some reason, it's sufficiently explosive to blow a hole in a door. (laughs) 
I, I'm just going to come to my own defense here and say that when I said that they did the exploration badly, I didn't mean that they made an exploration, that the process of exploring the idea was done poorly because they just didn't do it. So I right, right. kind of think we're in agreement there, really. I, yeah, like, entirely. no, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> they didn't do it. And that's a bad exploration when you don't explore but uh, yeah yeah well that's cool and it also jams uh conveniently jams technology devices and makes bombs run faster <laughs> yep yep that one was yeah <laughs> and of course we we have to go there i know this is bugs i know the whole tech point of bugs is the high tech but really electronic handcuffs was that strictly <laughs> necessary or or a good idea <laughs> well indeed if 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 we're if we're onto the gadgets and I've been keeping my usual checklist, how does the taser work? Oh, that's that's the phaser taser. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's like, a phaser yeah. taser. It did it did seem to fire a kind of bolt, didn't it? Rather than just it did a wire to to discharge into someone. Which, if you will recall, we were talking about in I think it was the very last episode where the guards had electric firing guns, electric. which yeah. we said. That is not how Terry tasers work. I think that's literally what they were going for in that episode too. Those were. But this time they be... call it a taser. They and the effect looks different, but it is basically it's basically yep. the same thing. What about the stormburst missile? That yeah. why why is my question? Why would you want a missile that behaves in that fashion? Well, I also want to know: Would it work? I don't know. Be, or would it work in that way? Because, because when the vapour ignites, it's going to create a shockwave. And so, in effect, the missile is just going to... It's, I mean, that's going to, the shockwave is going to knock the plane out of the sky before it sets it on fire. It's going to work like a conventional thermobaric weapon would. And if it didn't and just created a kind of flamey bit of air that the plane flew through, it's not, it's not obvious to me, and I... You know, I'm not an engineer, um, but it's not or an aeronautical engineer, but it's not obvious to me that that would actually set the plane on fire. So it all seemed a bit strange. No, you know, at five, six hundred miles an hour, I, I don't know that it would. Yeah, I don't I didn't quite get I get that they're going for something that they can try to pass off as some sort of natural exposure explosion of the plane. I don't know that it would accomplish that. But then going a step backwards, would Kazbekistan really want to have that it, are, are they trying to say that not only do they have stealth fighters but the intent of those stealth fighters is to blow up planes without making it look like they're blowing up planes because i think that's what we're going for yes. but eh. <laughs> like, i don't i don't think that's a problem because bekistan is is capable enough to stealing u.s stealth fighter technology that's I think they're ahead of, far enough ahead of the game that they don't have to worry about that anymore. Speaking of technology, and I really wish John was here for this, uh, and I didn't get a chance to consult with him, but I think that, one, Ed did not need to go to all that trouble to destroy the plane because all he needed to do was to punch out because when the hmm. canopy gets ripped off of that stealth fighter, Good I don't point. think it's a viable plane anymore. Good point. Right. Stealth fighters, you know, jet fighters are aerodynamic and they're designed 
you know, in a wind tunnel for aerodynamic purposes and the canopy, when it comes off, changes the aerodynamics of the plane for starters in a bad, bad way. That's one. Stealth fighter, however, aren't as aerodynamic because they have the important function of being radar deflective or confusing. And so those are, my understanding is they're not easy planes to fly and they require a significant amount of computer assistance in the way they work their control surfaces and and to fly them. So I think that plane would probably be even worse if you lopped the canopy off. So one, I think that would have blown the plane up or crashed the plane right there, whether or not Jerome is capable of piloting the thing or not. Second, my understanding is, and again, could be different in a Cosbeck stealth fighter. My understanding is that when you eject from a plane, planes are either of one of two categories. This is two-seater planes. They either, the ejections are timed on the same switch so that they don't kill each other. I can see the benefit of that. Or they have to be operated independently, in which case the person in back must eject first. Otherwise, the pilot ejecting burns them with the jets from their ejection seat. So so either way, all Ed had to do was to punch out. And if the two seats were timed together, they both would have punched out. The miss, the, the job would have been scrubbed, even though Jerome would, would still be alive, potentially. So well, that's one. And then apparently, and I didn't know this until I looked into it. And like I said, this is why I wish John was here, because he's, he's much more of a plane nerd than I am. Uh, apparently, uh, Pilots are can be extremely injured by being blown out of the plane like that. That the the conventional wisdom seems to be that if you have to do this three times, you don't fly ever again. They just won't certify you for flight because it puts enormous stress on your your ligaments and your collarbone. And if your arms and legs aren't tucked up right, they'll be snapped right off as you go out of the plane. And I mean it's it is a very unpleasant experience and very likely to hurt you. You'll be alive, but maybe not as glib and happy as Ed was when he landed on the ground and just, oh, yeah, it's like, I don't think so. But <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was that's my technical technical nitpicky on this, <laughs> if it's even right. But I, I think it's reasonably accurate to say that that would have been no walk in the park when he did that there's also just in terms of appearing futuristic in the way that bugs likes to the fact that the they they get they speak to jerome over his computer rods hacks his machine and oh yeah sets it up as a as a ticket booking system and he asks as if as if he's asking on a telephone how did you get this this number how did you get this internet address? Yes. Capital I, capital N. I particularly like that. See how cutting edge they are. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a weird that was a weird scene because it approximates nothing I've ever seen in the evolution of the internet. Right? It beeps at him, he goes over there, there's this there's this message coming in, and then there's the line below it. Respond or response. I forget which it was. And you type your response and then it does it at the other end. It's like, I know it's sort of chattish, but really not like any chat I 
I recall seeing either, and certainly not something that you would be booking a ticket over. <laughs> Just really, really bizarre. I was amused that the guy saw Ed through the CD that he was looking at. I remember the good old days with CDs. He used his mirrors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the guy up there with a flashlight shining down on you from his head. <laughs> that Yeah. I, I should mention Bixon, uh, Peter Woodward, son of Edward Woodward, oh, the actor. Oh, is he? Yes. Uh, and, and I warned you off the Wikipedia because he was a major character in the sequel series to Babylon 5, uh, Straczynski's Crusade. And I can tell you nothing about his character and nothing about Crusade without being spoilery. <laughs> Just that. But I recognized him instantly. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. I know that guy. And I actually know him from a, a relatively benign good guy role uh, than, than this sort of sinister. Because he was coming off sinister from the moment he was in the room. And uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't buy that for a second, that he was, the, he was a good guy. It just didn't. I thought no. maybe at first he was, before he, before he introduced who he worked with, I thought maybe he was like from the hive. And so he was actually kind of supposed to be playing the shifty spy master kind of guy. But then when he said he was like a global committee for economic equilibrium, I'm like, huh, no, that, no, <laughs> that he's, that's not right. That's not coming off the way it should. Got anything else on this? I wanted to. To, yeah, I mean, I got a, a few. This it's one of the perks of an episode that's not necessarily got me on the edge of the seat for the whole of the running time as the the last three did. Um, it gave me a bit of a chance to think about bugs and the the world it creates and the way the the kind of language it uses, the shortcuts it uses, and how it tries to create a sense of time and place that that place being the london docklands and that time being the mid-1990s and so one of those things i think which is quite interesting certainly you know looking at from a british perspective is is straight air and why they why they decided to use a challenger airline as being the the, the kind of um the client is this like Virgin era? This is this is or the other one, Ryanair or Jet. Ryanair or... Ryanair was um Ryanair had been abound for about I think ten years or so by the time this aired. Um but it it's it's very much I think connected with Ryanair and I and the the deregulation of the European air industry in uh in ninety two would have been very recent. Um either that year or the year before, EasyJet, another budget uh, easy jet that was what i was thinking of as as, uh, as ryanair was established so i think i think these things would have been very familiar very in the news and felt very now i think this is probably more based on ryanair than EasyJet because well for a start the ceo is not greek but or greek cypriot um although actually to be fair he's not irish either um but it's the fact that he is on television saying things in a very blunt way. And mm. Michael O'Leary is kind of famous for 
using the news to get free advertising by saying outrageous things like um you know charging saying he's going to charge passengers a pound to use the toilet on Ryanair flights or what have you but even mm. even given that what they're doing i thought it was pretty strange that you had the chairman of the airline talking about a safety issue on television and saying that it was the competitor airlines the big guys these you know this is ba or whoever it, it, it are are acting to try and keep his airline out and the reason for that is quite i mean never never it, just imagine that gets past all the lawyers <clears throat> right the reason for that is how would you react as a potential passenger on his airline where he's yeah, saying, I would, I would be like, we are yeah. a target. Are you going to fly with him? No, <laughs> absolutely it's, not. It's, it, you know, that is, that is a pretty strange thing to do. So even, you know, even before you kind of have Ed articulating the whole preposterousness of the scenario, you know, uh, big airlines plotting to bring down the new boy. Said, are you serious? You have this strange TV interview where actually it it loses its authenticity and its realism because because that's not credible as a way of talking to a tv audience in world what he's actually doing is he's talking to the tv audience watching bugs because he is explaining the plot to them i didn't really think about it in terms of yeah passengers would not want to fly on it although that's certainly reasonable but it it was a sort of yeah, we had this big explosion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, <laughs> they're out to get me. It's like that, that, that's not that's not what you want to people to be thinking. It wasn't so much that people were out to get you; it's that your security still wasn't good enough to stop it. Exactly. Or your safety precautions were not good enough to stop it. Therefore, that that's you know not how you phrase it. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's true and maybe you're going to go after them and maybe you had evidence that they were, but that is not how you would put it on TV. No, not at all. Uh, uh, kind of leading on from that, but connected with something that we've talked about before in the Bugs universe. If you have a plot that is centered around there being attacks on an airline, which let's face it, you've got to question whether that's possible terrorism. I mean, you've got to at least investigate the possibility. I mean, I would be expecting, at the very least, the CAA, MI5, NCIS, probably the Met special branch. I would have thought also SS. Another reason why I thought maybe Nixon was the hive. Right. Official something. So we have talked before about the fact that we haven't really seen the authorities get involved when you might expect them to, like the Bugs team being involved in a death and then not really reporting it to the police or hanging around for anyone to come and interview them or anything like that. And so I was turning that over in my mind and realised that actually what's going on here is there are no no state actors of any sort in Bugs. There is no public sector, effectively. Um, that's not always been true. Obviously, you mentioned the Hive from out of the Hive and in Assassin's Inc. There is the, the kind of they're employed by the government. So there's that kind of international arm. I don't really remember anything else since then, though, that hasn't been 
all about the private sector. Mm-hmm. The Bugs team themselves are a small business. A, they're a security outfit. Their clients are always businesses. They may be doing things that are of national significance. So, for example, biological research that would affect the, the crop harvest in the, the last one, or, you know, even the kind of space flights stuff. It's important right. technology. It matters. Actually, that's true. There was a there was a a nation state involved in that but nevertheless no the, wait what was there the, the, it w- because they were doing that survey for i forget which was that um made up country of the week oh yes okay made up country yes, but 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 i mean the the point still holds that it's it's a private company that is putting that yeah. that satellite up so there are the in other in other words there are there are essentially just these these private outfits and the public sector has vanished, which I think is quite a kind of zeitgeisty thing. We're in the aftermath of Thatcherism. You know, she's been I was gone say, five this years. Is, this may be a, 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 a warning. This may be, this is the science fiction. This is what the world is like without regulation and officials and police and but so I, I I kind of think it's being done in a positive way. It's trying to it's it's trying to show how successful businesses can be because in at the end of it, even though uh, we have discussed the ethics of our protagonists and the ways in which they actually thwart the supposed baddies being not 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 really defensible in many ways, the pattern is still our little band of privateers comes out on top every week. And even if it is a bit of a kind of Wild West vision of the private sector, those problems are all resolved without any assistance from the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, in the, in the kind of major government years, they're they're still they're still basically privatizing everything. They're they're privatizing the the railways. They're trying to privatize the post office. So all of the kind of big state businesses, they are just hiving them off. And it's the the aim because it's a conservative government is minimizing the state. And then I think, although you know the the kind of new labor movement did embrace privatization in some ways, it also massively massively increased public funding. There were big kind of visible state interventions around things like you know in in in, ter- in terms of the world we're looking at things like security and intelligence and all of the kind of post 911 stuff that essentially marked a different era well, when so, when uh, I was going to ask when did tony blair take over vis-a-vis this episode of 1997, in between season two and season three of Bugs. So it'll be interesting to see whether that influence bleeds through at all. But what Mm. you are seeing here is what was aired during the dying years of the major government. And the Oh, you know, (laughs) when you said major government earlier, I thought you were talking about major government, as in large, not John Major, (laughs) major government, that major government. Got it? Yes. Yes, John Major as, as Prime Minister, leading a government limping its way through to basically annihilation and um, some 
13 years of opposition for the, for the Conservative Party. So um, it it's a particular... <laughs> they got their formula right now. It's a particular zeitgeist for them to have picked up on, and I wonder if it is connected with the fact that, you know, it it did quickly get forgotten about. It although it although it was popular at the time and it ran for four seasons, no one now has heard about it. So yeah, could be. The the connection that I was making earlier with the, the prison is that prisons were being privatized under the major government and were. that the well indeed we I mean we still have private prisons and I'm sure we have many more now than we did in ninety five, ninety six, whenever this was. But I think that the way in which they are showing the prison, which is quite minimal and maybe has not just to do with the limited budget for the set and so forth, is that it it's not seen as a public institution as much as prisons might traditionally have been portrayed on television. So the the governor, for example, does seem to wield great discretion uh, in terms of what he can grant rather than him being an institution bound by uh, a, a board Laws. of governors or, or whatever would whatever you would get in a a kind of more obviously publicly run prison. Uh, yeah, and you know, last time or the time before when he was talking about how Marcel was making money for their pension fund and for a new wing and stuff, that does kind of imply that, you know, that is that is divorced from the public sector method of spending money and of having it allocated mm-hmm. and you know that you you can't just have somebody give you money to build a or to put into the pension fund or to or to build a new rec room or something you it would have to go through channels that that would probably set off alarm bells but so yeah that that does imply this is a private a private prison which is why they get the cool uniforms with the <laughs> goggles absolutely yeah you don't you don't get goggles like that on the on the public taxpayers dollar Oh, pound. Yeah, lucky to get a whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anything else? I just wanted to mention that Roz's yellow car features in this, but maybe a different car. I didn't pay enough attention to the cars. And indeed, I even remembered too late after we recorded the last episode that although I said her car was the first casualty of the show. It's not because her previous car was also a casualty when it got put into a crusher. And I think that was red. So that was definitely a different car. So whether this is whether this is her, her um, B-damaged car repaired or whether she just has decided yellow is the colour and has replaced it with another one in an identical shade, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I did note that she had that car uh i i I was a little that whole sequence where she takes off in a truck and uh uh what's his name zeist geist heist fisk was able to chase her and jump in the back of the car was not very credible (laughs) in my mind but okay uh at least she then was able to get up fast enough that she could throw him through a windshield so eh, all right um all right. Uh, well, if that's it, then. Oh yes, there's just just one last thing, which is that um, Welling Dervish was uh, the second episode that was uncredited with a writer. There is no writing credit given on screen. Interesting. 
Could this be one of the ones I thought said Brian Clemens was the writer in Wikipedia or IMDb? It is credited as being Brian Clemens in Wikipedia, as indeed I think uh, it was uh, Shotgun Wedding from season one, which doesn't have an on-screen writer credit. And this is also, at the time of us doing these podcasts, credited to Brian Clements Hmm. on Wikipedia. But I could not find any citation and I could not find anything that backed up that it was Brian Clements who wrote it. So I'm not I'm not denying that that is the case. In some sense, you can see the hand of Brian Clemens in 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 uh, using a very high concept sci-fi notion, just as a just as a MacGuffin, like you got in the Avengers: Mission Highly Improbable, or Who's Who, or the new Avengers three-handed game. But I I I simply could not find any evidence to back that up. And I could not find any explanation for why, if it is written by Brian Clemens, why he doesn't get an on-screen credit. Yeah, that that is strange. Very strange. So what is the next episode? The next episode is Blackout. Blackout. All right, Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fusion Patrol, we hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash fusionpatrol or buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently doing a special series on Season 2 of Babylon 5. There's over a decade of previous episodes available at fusionpatrol.com. Come join the conversation on our website or Twitter. You can also find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusion patrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.